Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, we're just going to dive in. Very special episode of The Scoop. Incredibly special because there's so much going on in the market. And it's been fun for me, you know, covering crypto these past few months. I've had more of an opportunity than ever before to cover traditional markets. And this week provides a really good example. We wrote about gold a lot. We wrote about yields hitting close to all-time lows. We wrote about the dollar weakening. There are just all these headlines that are so relevant to not only the broader markets, but to our little crypto community. And all the while, Bitcoin and Ethereum are ripping higher. And so we're excited to have Tom Lee on the show again. Co-founder, founder, lead behind Fundstrat. Tom, we're ready for you to make another call on the show. You're two for two already. When you came on and we and when everyone was freaking out about the yield curve inverting, you called all-time highs and we got those all-time highs. And then when everyone doubted you on a V-shaped equity recovery back in late March, you were right again. And we're still ripping higher in stocks. Tom, how's it been going? It's been going well. I mean, I'm still in amazement that the world has been shut down by a disease. You know, I mean, to me, that's still something I'm, my brain is still trying to understand um, what's happened. Yeah. I figured at least at this point, everyone is kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. They're always pointing towards, you know, future data and the virus maybe being, you know, something that will drag down stocks. But I mean, even with Florida cases rising, Texas cases rising, political uncertainty, and the rest, you're still calling for people to get behind stocks like Carnival and the like. You still see this environment in which companies that are being hit hard are still showing some signs of resiliency. Yes. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is, you know, there's the world, which, you know, let's say we measure it as GDP, and then there's earnings per share. And then there's stock prices, you know? And so I, I think often people assume that the three have to always stay connected. You know, that GDP and earnings and stocks are always anchored together. But as you know, there's reasons that they can diverge. I mean, um, they can diverge because like, you know, at the bottom of a bear market, 
the stocks are going to explode higher, but earnings aren't going to move and GDP could still be stuck in neutral. Um, and then there's also periods when, you know, the stocks are going to move because they know earnings are turning and GDP is turning. So, you know, you don't always have to connect the three. And I think what's happened this year is because we essentially got knocked over by this virus. I think everybody kind of made this assumption, well, hey, if GDP is going to collapse, then we have to drag down earnings and then stocks have to go to, you know, to fall 80, 90%. And as, and as, as we're in August, uh, that's not happened. Well, why do you think maybe the virus isn't having as much of an impact on markets as it did maybe in March and early April, or rather late February, March? Why were the markets tracking the virus and its impact so much more so then and, and kind of shrugging it off now, even with the prospect of a second and third wave on the horizon? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, the stock market is mysterious. So, you know, I, I can never tell the market what to do. But if I was trying to understand what it's saying, I think it's telling us a few things, Frank. You know, number one, in terms of textbook, it's acting very textbook because, as you know, the last time we were together, we were talking about how stock market recoveries are symmetric to the decline. So the faster you fall, the faster you rebound. And, and, and that's what we're seeing now. But I think that the second sort of delinkage, there's two like additional ones. One is that uh, the disease is turning out to be a lot less deadly than we expected. You know, like we have nearly twice as many cases now as we did in March, April, and the deaths are like close to 70% lower. So the amount of mortality associated with each case is, is far lower. And so I think the reaction function's changing because of that. And then I think the third thing is that enough times passed that we can see that not every company is suffering. You know, this, this, this virus has created winners and losers. And in fact, it's created unkillability. You know, it's changed how people view some of these big tech names because they actually prospered in this crash. Yeah. And if they're prospering, they, might, they must be worth a lot more money than we thought. Yeah. I mean, Apple provides a good example of that, right? I mean, they reported Q2 2020 revenues of $59 billion, up 11% from a year ago. And across the board, you saw, you know, tech companies, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, just really showing up the street in a way that when you juxtapose it with a lot of the stress in treasuries and gold ripping higher, at first glance, it maybe doesn't make sense. When you look at tech and you look at these companies, do you think that maybe they're showing signs of being overvalued? Uh, well, I guess one way to answer this is, um, like, let's take a step back to like January. And like, if someone, if we posited a scenario that there'd be a disease that infects 15 million people in the world, kills, is going to kill millions, okay? And we have to shut the world economy down. And then we said, okay, but then imagine a handful of companies prevent the complete shutdown of the world. What would we do? I think that's what's happened, right? I mean, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, a lot of S&P companies prevented utter collapse of society. 
I mean, so to me, they provided a huge, like they went through a stress test. They proved that they're really great businesses and they should be rewarded. So I, I think that's, I, don't, I mean, I'm not even sure if I'm explaining that right, but to me, that's, that's what happened. Like we're, we're finding out that these were not only superstars, they're Olympic, you know, they're Olympic quality stars. And that if they can get through, I think you said this on CNBC about, I think many different sectors, but maybe tech in particular, if they can sort of get through this relatively unscathed, then maybe we underestimated how robust they are, which is a totally different conversation than we were having a few months ago when we were really questioning the resiliency of, of various companies who maybe didn't have the wherewithal in their reserves to get through a crisis and really needed federal government to step in, et cetera. Exactly. Is what changed the fact that the Fed did step in and that, you know, we had PPP and, you know, we maybe underestimated the degree to which we'd be able to kind of get back to regular lives to a degree, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think the central bank, you know, clearly played a role. I mean, uh, look, let's face it. Everybody who, all these people who follow financial markets for years and, and everyone's always said, don't fight the Fed. When the Fed was intervening, everyone was like, well, it's not going to work. So I think, I think the one mistake a lot of financial professionals made was to think that the Fed didn't matter. So the Fed clearly matters. But as you know, the Fed is essentially part of a financial system that involves U.S. financial instruments. And so the beneficiary of Fed intervention is, is really the equity markets. And so, yeah, I think it's played a role. But look, even if the Fed intervened, if Amazon couldn't deliver goods and if Walmart and Costco couldn't operate, the U.S. economy would have completely shut down. So I, I think that people should, shouldn't just say it's only the Fed, but the Fed really was a great stabilizer. And I'm just going to say, again, if this is like putting companies to the ultimate stress test. And if they were able to grow earnings or revenues, you know, that's, they're amazing businesses. What about some cracks or weaknesses out of the credit market? If we see the Fed slow down or if we see, you know, the end of PPP and, and some of the stimulus that we've been having pumped into the economy, are there worries that we could see defaults continue to pick up or mortgage defaults pile up in a way that might show some signs of weakness? I would say if that happens, yeah, it's definitely negative, Frank. I think people are using that as their central case. And maybe that's the difference. Like to me, if that's what was happening, then I wouldn't be positive on markets. But well, you have you have you have commercial mortgage delinquencies near record levels, so that's one thing. Yes, but I mean it's understandable why commercial mortgages and landlords and defaults are taking place. You know, and you know, so the so the presence of those shouldn't make people say that this is where things need to go down to because in 2009 that was exactly the logic people had about staying bearish even through 2012 because mortgage delinquencies were still elevated several years after 2009 so you don't necessarily want to connect a level of stress to where prices need to be because remember the stock market and asset prices don't only look at the current situation. I mean, here's a simple exercise. Let's say you're paying a 15 PE for a stock, right? You're paying 15 times earnings. Mm -hmm. And if the discount rate was zero, you're buying 60 quarters of earnings. 
So why should one quarter affect the future value if you have 60 quarters that you're really counting at a zero discount rate? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so then if we're having commercial mortgage problems now, if we have them for the next 10 years, then yeah. Then, <laughs> then in 10 years we can worry. But if it's just because of the virus and things are shut down, then I don't know. You know, I don't know what you price one quarter or two quarters of misery at, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that maybe people overestimated was a change in people's behavior, right? You know, folks wouldn't necessarily be returning back to work or going to restaurants. I'm recording right now from our office in Manhattan. And I think at least in New York for the time being, knock on wood, we've seen, um, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, an ability for people to get back to some degree of normalcy, which is good for the economy. It's good for small businesses. So that's one possible glimmer of, of hope, finding diamonds in the rough, uh, so to speak, or kind of maybe identifying opportunities amidst a broader decline in stocks. And now everything's kind of going up. Or is it kind of just like buy the whole kit caboodle? Or are there different pockets that you think might be stronger? Obviously, tech is showing signs of resiliency. And, and what maybe might be weak? Well, I think... Uh... You know, if I had to offer a mental framework, you know, if the virus is getting stronger, then people want safety, right? So I'm saying something obvious. And then if the virus is weakening, then people can focus more on offensive or like cyclical trades, you know? And if I were to survey the world today, I'd say everyone's kind of thinks we're somewhere in the middle because it's not like cases are at 18,000 like they were in May, you know, they're at in the 60, 70,000 range. So I think, you know, it's, we're somewhere in the middle. So I can understand why people are buying bond proxies and FANG and tech stocks and secular growth. But in a month, it's very possible like that cases could follow the path they did in April and May, which means they're going to collapse. And if they start to collapse, then I think people want to think about things that benefit from the economy reopening. And, you know, that's the casinos and the theme parks, the, the groups that really got clobbered during the shutdown. Yeah. So that's what I would think is where I would spend a lot of time, you know, because there's nobody like, I don't think anyone has to do a lot of work to figure out Apple or Facebook. You know I mean? They're great businesses. I mean, there's no, you just want to own those companies because they're great businesses. But if someone's trying to put money from the sidelines, I think they should try to find, like you said, the diamonds in the rough. So Ryan was talking about how you guys have this granny shop portfolio, effectively easy wins. How has that shifted with COVID? We mentioned yeah. tech, but are there any less glamorous or well-known? <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about the grannies. Yeah. So we've, uh, so we've been uh, running the granny shots stock list since January 2019, so, you know, almost uh, 18 months. And it combines um, our different thematic portfolios. This year, granny shots are up 21%, and the market's flat. And granny shots have beaten the S&P six out of the seven months this year. So they've, you know, in fact, in July, they're outperforming by 500 basis points. So it's been a, 
I think thematic investing has been a good way for people to pick stocks. That's kind of what we, our granny shots does. You know, it sort of finds stocks that millennials are going to use. It focuses on AI and automation and, and potential inflation winners. So that's how we're picking granny shots. And we've been rotating it, you know, every three months. So the latest uh, rotation is still 24 stocks. The top name in the granny shots list from our rotation in, in June was Apple. Apple's our number one pick. But we also have like some new names in there like Lowe's. Hmm. Tesla's been in the list for quite a long time. But Lowe's, HP, Lennar, a home builder. Amazon was added to the list on June 30th. And Procter & Gamble. So you can see it's sort of a... It's, it's a high quality sort of core list of stocks. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Apple. It's just outrageous, right? Today we're up nine. Yeah. Nine percent since the open. Oh, and they had a stock split too. Um, so was there anything out of uh, Apple's earnings that surprised you? Uh, you know, Frank, I, I don't follow earnings that closely, but you know, sure. one of the things that I, I think is interesting is how many people still call Apple a hardware company because, um, you know, one, if they're viewed as a hardware company, that's why the multiple was always so low. I mean, I don't think, you, you know, for a long time, Apple had a 10, 11, 12 PE. Now, now it's PE is now starting to look more like a software company. And that makes sense because it really is a system. But, uh, you know, it's this unkillability. I mean, if I had to say you take the worst depression in five lifetimes, companies that grow earnings, what should they be worth? I think people should say the multiple should be a lot higher. So I mean, I think that's why the stock market in general is going up in PE. And then I think that's why these names now realize people are saying they're probably too cheap. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow the block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. For a while, the stock market's momentum and push forward was leaving Bitcoin behind in the dust for a while until, I guess, let's say, two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. Yeah. You had, you have said for a while that if you want to see where Bitcoin's going to go, just look at the stock market, you know, kind of illustrating the degree to which they've been correlated. Do you still think that's the case that they're pretty much coupled and that, you know, until maybe the S and P starts to dip, you'll likely, or the markets will likely continue to see Bitcoin inch further higher. Yeah. That's right, Frank. I mean, as you know, it's not a popular opinion to say Bitcoin's a risk on asset. You know, that's been our view that when S&P does well, Bitcoin's going to do well. But I think a lot of it has to do with our view that incremental buyer today is an American uh, household. One third of all the wealth in the world is controlled by Americans. So 100 trillion of the 300 trillion of household net worth 
but Americans are going to buy Bitcoin with cash on the sidelines or with profits from asset markets. So they're more likely to buy Bitcoin if they've made money in equities. And I think that's kind of what, you know, part of like, you know, as you say, why did Bitcoin catch fire in the last couple of weeks? You know, someone could say it's loosely connected to the happening, which it's not really not. And maybe to the dollar, which maybe it's loosely into gold. But at the end of the day, if the S&P was down 90%, I would think it would be very hard to imagine Bitcoin doing well this year. Because I think people have money in financial instruments. They're diversifying and, and some of them are starting to buy Bitcoin. Are you surprised that some of these risk on assets are doing really well while at the same time people are also piling into gold? Uh, yeah, you know what? In a way, yes. But then maybe if I think about where the money, where like who buys gold, I'm not. Like, you know, if I if I look at who's got great intense interest in gold today, it's primarily baby boomers, right? Because um, I don't think a millennial is necessarily a gold bug. And um, I'm Gen X. None of my friends really cares about gold, but baby boomers care about gold because, you know, they were buyers. And, and of course, it's because their parents, they might be inheriting it from their parents, too, because, you know, the parents of boomers are the ones who are really big gold buyers. So I, I think boomers were the ones who went to huge cash position. You've seen many of the stories about this, but like Schwab, I think, noted that a third of their accounts went 100 percent cash during the sell-off. Yeah. So if you're a baby boomer and you think the stock market you sold in February, March, you missed most of the rally and you're refusing to buy it here because, you know, coronavirus is quite deadly, you might say, well, what are they going to buy? Well, they can buy gold, you know, because then they can say, well, there's all this money printing that's inflationary. So I, I think that that's the cash on the sidelines of baby boomers is buying gold. That's super interesting. I haven't heard that argument yet, but it does explain this dichotomy we're seeing where... You have Robinhood, Davy Day traders piling into the hot tech stocks, while at the same time you have gold really enjoying an impressive rally, not only since the beginning of the month, but the beginning of the year. Um, and so you maybe have these two different groups acting almost entirely in opposition to each other. Then yes. the entire market kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is retail sentiment that measures baby boomer sentiment is the AAII survey. That's um, the American Association of Individual Investors, but their customer base is all over age 60. It's a much older retail client base. They've shown persistently negative sentiment towards equities. And it's the, it's one of the, it's the longest running survey. It's been run since 1986. So, you know, almost 33 years, you know, it coincides with baby boomers being really bearish. I mean, it makes sense if, you know, baby boomers, they, this is a really deadly this disease. Didn't kill them. This is the disease that impacts them the most. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I can understand why baby boomers really bearish. Okay. So you have bearish baby boomers who are loading up on gold, driving that higher, driving ETF gold inflows up. And then you have, you know, a less concerned millennial Gen X base who are piling in on the hottest tech stocks and the Robinhood day traders piling in on Nikola and anything that like sounds shiny to them. 
So where does Bitcoin fit in those two camps? Is Bitcoin, at least among your clients or the folks that you're talking to, is Bitcoin viewed more in the the sort of tech stock bucket or in the, you know, the dollar's weakening, the world's going to hell. Uh, here's a digital version of this gold that I'm also piling in on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's evolving, you know, how the institutional world views Bitcoin, which I think they're still skeptical, but less skeptical. But, you know, one thing that really has changed, Frank, is cash, right? I think cash has become dirty. It was already dirty. Like cash was already a dirty thing, you know, because, you know, more $100 bills are used for drug dealing than and money laundering than it is, you know, to spend. But because of coronavirus, I think, you know, we're seeing businesses essentially go cashless. And therefore, digital money is making it easier to understand the value of Bitcoin, you know, which is a essentially a settlement uh, network that isn't denominated in dollars. So I think that there is a genuine reason for people to see the usefulness of Bitcoin go up. But mm. it's not, you know, still it's still a little small for the institutional world. But, you know, if Bitcoin gets to 100,000 or 200,000, it becomes a lot much bigger addressable market because you know the gold market is you know nine trillion so it's so so like are you basically saying that it's not that this older demographic or the institutional landscape doesn't view bitcoin as to use paul tudor jones's words the fastest horse in a race against mounting inflation they just don't really even think anything of it at all yes it doesn't doesn't it doesn't enter their, it's like TikTok to a baby boomer. You know what I mean? <laughs> Bitcoin's like TikTok. It doesn't well, mean a lot to, to most. Well, you mentioned you mentioned the dollar. I don't know if you saw Goldman Sachs put out some research on, you know, some of the concerns that they see, the potential emerging concerns of debasement and of rising geopolitical tensions and domestic political uncertainty and mounting debt, maybe playing into some forces that could ultimately present risk in the U.S. dollars reserve status. Do you, do you view those concerns maybe as overblown or is there a reason why the dollar has just been taking a big beating, especially over the past month? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not a currency specialist and I think currencies are lame. Either. Well, they're hard to, harder to forecast than um, interest rates. And as you know, I don't know anybody who's cons been consistently right at calling interest rates, unless they just say rates are going down and, and that person's been right. Um, like, you know, in, in terms of like dollar, you know, for every dollar that we use in the economy, it's traded 300 times in the financial world. Okay. So we have a $20 trillion economy and dollars are traded, you know, 300 times that everywhere else for other purposes. You know, can you imagine in the next 12 months this being replaced by the euro or the renminbi? Like, I would say it's improbable, right? So I think anyone who's trying to build a thesis on the dollars, days are over. They That is 
linked to someone saying the financial system is going to be completely rewired. And if they're correct, if they, if we're going to completely rewire the financial system, so it's not using dollars, so like every asset is not denominated in dollars, then I, they're dead on. But if not, I don't think it matters what deficits we run and what the Fed's doing. You know, the dollar is still what everything is denominated in. Plus, you know, I mean, you go to some place, like let's say we go to some place in a frontierish area where there's no internet, the dollar is as good as gold there. But if you imagine pulling out some renminbi or Swiss francs, you're not going to be able to spend that. If you needed to, you found an oasis and the guy wants money, you can give him gold or dollars and that's probably the only things he'll accept, you know? So... Yeah, he's definitely not going to accept euro. Yeah, he's not going to accept Chuck E. Cheese tokens or a crypto wallet. You know what I mean? So, okay, what about the elections, Tom? To what degree do you think that's going to impact stocks? It's a huge deal. I mean, it you know, stocks like elections are as important to the stock market like NFL is you know to the holidays. Like it's sport. And so people very focused on it right now. Does it actually change the outcome? I don't think it does, to be honest. Like, I think if if we if Trump gets reelected and the Senate stays Republican, or if Biden wins and we have a Democratic sweep, and someone says, "Where's the S and P in 2021?" and if we had A B testing, like a true time machine, the market would be in the same place. I don't think it actually is going to make a difference, but it matters. You know what I mean? Like right now it matters because people want to talk about it. But I know in 2016, I mean, just really good proof. Look at all those trades that all these brokerage firms were saying would work if Trump won or if Hillary won. I'll guarantee you none of them played out at all because it just didn't really make a difference. You know, Mm -hmm. people were saying that the market would tank if Trump won and the market rallied. So... I think there's merits to both. I think if, if Biden wins, there's a lot of good things that are going to happen. And if Trump gets reelected, I think the market likes it because there's things that they like about Trump's policies. Yeah. His lack of tweeting would definitely be a welcome. welcome. By the way, yeah, if Trump loses, yeah, the, probably the biggest loser will be social media and the, and the media stocks because all of a sudden no one's going to be on Twitter and reading well, newspapers. Biden won't even go on television at all. Like, <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. Seriously, but if Biden wins, no one's going to even use Twitter anymore, right? Like, because there's no controversy. There's no point in reading a newspaper. There's no, it's going to be a very boring world. Well, maybe a very happy world, though. I'm not saying it's a sad world. Maybe a little more relaxing. Yeah, Uh, exactly. There'll be less protests. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was the other risk, you know, that seems to be subsiding this sort of social tension that sweeped the nation. I mean, not to sort of, trivialize it, right? Like there are a lot of valid concerns across the nation about, you know, how certain folks are treated and, and many, many, many valid concerns in that sphere. But that seems to have subsided from at least a market's perspective, right? Um, When you look out to the end of the year, you kind of don't seem concerned about the election. Democrat, Republican stocks will basically be in the same place. What other non-COVID events could drag the markets down? I mean, short of, I know you're like kind of got this reputation as a perma bull, but yeah. there's be something you kind of alluded to. Um, By the way, that's, yeah, sorry. But you know what's really funny? 
is people call me a perma bull because they're shouting into the wind. You know what I mean? Like, like let's say someone was short the market and they got their face ripped off. They're going to be like, oh, well, you know, the perma bull, like I have nothing to do with the market. You know what I mean? Like, so it's funny. I would say that the fact that people use that label shows you how wrongly positioned most are because at the end of the day, they are probably betting against the markets. I'm not like, I don't tell the stock market what to do. So I, how could I be a perma bull? I would say I'm more likely someone that says this is what markets do. So it's, you know what I mean? Like it's a weird, it's a weird attribute they're giving me, but it really reflects the speaker's poor judgment because, <laughs> right? I mean, imagine like, is, is, is someone who's made money in the stock market going to call me a perma bull or someone who's lost money? <laughs> Think about it, right? <laughs> right, Listen, right? You're bringing the fire and we love it. Like imagine if, like, if I was recommending Apple and they're like, Tom, you've always had to buy an Apple. And he's, he's an Apple bull. <laughs> Apple bull. Oh my gosh, he's a fang bull. I mean, you know it's a silly label because you're like, oh, well, you, you should have just, you know, remember if you bought Apple in 2000, I just saw the stat, $60,000 turned into almost $2 million. So imagine someone's like, oh, you've only liked Apple for the last 20 years. I and know, but like, the reason why, you know, we want you to be more bearish is because if it bleeds, it leads. We need a little bit, uh, yeah. a little more. Uh, no, but isn't it interesting? Like the labeling is a strange, it's almost like someone was like, oh, you're pro-democracy. You know, you're. You, you, you're, you're like pro freedom. I mean, I'm a communist. Uh, you know what I mean? Like communist people are freer, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the strangeness of, uh, the labeling people use it. Yeah. I don't know if we ever use the word you're pro democracy and you're anti-democracy, you know, yeah. cause it's just people shouldn't be against markets, free markets and free yeah. pricing, you know? Well, it's not like you think everything will go up in all circumstances, no matter what, right? Like okay. even when I was looking at your tweet, do you have different frameworks or, you know, bull cases for certain sectors, depending on which way the virus goes, whether it progresses and grows stronger or whether it, it you know, slows down and we, we have things open up. Right. So yep. uh, maybe we could go through that as a way to like round out the episode. Like who are the biggest winners if the virus kind of grows stronger or, you know, kind of if we see cases continue to go up and who would be the biggest winners in the opposite scenario, if it really slows yeah. down, maybe we get a vaccine, et cetera. Yep. Well, I mean, uh, a simple way to think of it is we already know what the market has decided because from February to March, whatever got hit the hardest were the ones that are the most ri at risk of a disease, you know? And then like when the disease got stronger from June to July, we saw another sell-off. So we already know like what the market thinks are the worst to own if the disease is stronger, which is mainly travel related, like casinos, cruise lines, hotels, et cetera. And the reason I think it's, I wouldn't write these off completely, is that if you imagine a world like where there's no virus, a lot of these companies have a really strong franchise and customer base. You know, like cruise lines have a fanatical user base. Casinos have their own fanatical user base. So they have real franchises. I've never gone on a cruise and I don't think I ever will. Oh, well, as you know, the, the fastest growing segment of cruising are millennials. Really? 
I'm like, I'm barely a millennial. And, and it actually, it's true. Like with RVs too. I, you identify, know, I identify as a Neo boomer. <laughs> okay. Well then you're, you're probably a gold bug then, huh? No, no, no gold, no gold for me. Got anyway, it. sorry. Or you, I, uh, or you drive a three series BMW. You know, that's a boomer. Thing I would, I would do that. So, um, but they like, none of this is going to happen as long as there's a disease. So to me, the stocks that are the most interesting, if we get a cure or if we get the disease under control are totally different than what you want if the disease is raging. So the reason I like this epicenter stuff is I'm a more, I believe the odds of a vaccine and cure are much higher than people expect, you know, and not because I know anything. It's just because I know uh, we've had other pandemics and they passed and, and when they passed, you know, like the only reason we would be wrong is if these companies run out of money. But, you know, when you look at casinos, they have several years of runway. So, I mean, they could be shut for several years and they're still around. So I think that's the reason, you know, you can't wait them out of existence. And people today have a lot of pressure to only own what goes up. So they're buying the growth and the momentum stocks. But the minute we have a vaccine or like if in two weeks, if the number of cases in the U.S. They'll, drop, they'll, they'll, they'll move outside of that. Yes. Yeah. We're having too much fun, I think. Okay, let's try to go three for three in terms of your calls. S&P is currently at 32.50 and change. Is that right? Yeah, it's at 30.54. Do we finish the year higher or lower? I think we're, we're higher. I think we're going to break all-time highs before the end of the year. And does it matter for Bitcoin? And I think that's really bullish for Bitcoin. You know, you can tell because Grayscale's GBTC is like a proxy because that's a more liquid way for people to get exposure. And, and you know, the premium's expanding. And so uh, I think there's a lot of uh, tailwinds for Bitcoin if the S&P goes to 3,400. Yeah, I mean, their AUM has surged to well, well over 4 billion, I think. Yeah. Um, and you see things like custody. I mean, there's a lot of, I think, I, think this, I think this movement away from cash is actually helping Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Oh, like the fact that people don't want to use like physical dollars anymore because like they're dirty. Yeah. Because now money just exists electronically, right? Yeah. And there's a coin shortage too. Yeah. A lot yeah, of like the city aren't, um, they're not accepting anything other than exact cash or just no cash at all. My damn laundromat still wants cash though. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, banks used to not accept coin deposits. Like you couldn't bring a bag of quarters. Now they're going to actually give you a rebate if you bring in coins. You think so? It's a Yeah, it's known. Several banks are offering bounties if you bring in actual coins. <laughs> you know how like, you know, like for the last couple of years, if you wanted to get money for your coins, you had to go to like Coinstar and yeah, pay yeah. like 8%. Go to the shop right with your mom. It was always like a fun little trip. All right. Well, what, what else? I mean, I think I think we kind of like, Cover the gamut. Always, always exciting call. I'm going to go long right now. Not financial advice. Nothing in this podcast is financial advice. We offer other types of advice, personal relationship advice, but no financial advice. Tom Lee, Funstrat, always a pleasure when you join us on the show. Always fun. We never know what's going to happen. Great show. Yeah, it's good catching up with you guys. 
I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.